Ephesians. We're going to go into the scriptures and we're going to read the word. We're going to be starting in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 all the way down through verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 5. So if you don't have the scriptures on either your phone or whatever, we have them behind us. And here we go. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. You may be seated as we go into prayer. Father, as we open up the scriptures before us, we want to lift up Tanya to you. Lord, we want to ask that your hands would be upon her that you would bring healing to her body. Father, that you would allow the doctors that are in taking care of her to have the wisdom, the gifting, and the insight necessary to bring healing to her. Lord, miracles can happen in two ways, I believe. Very supernaturally, where you just peel back the window of heaven and we just see you move in a way that we don't make sense of. But many times for those of us who are sick, miracles happen through those who wear scrubs and doctor's coats because you have gifted them in such a special way to be able to identify issues and to be able to use what it is you have wired within their DNA to bring healing to your people. And I pray for that. I pray for both. If you decide, Lord, to just touch Tanya and just completely heal her so that she can move on, we pray for that. But we know, Lord, that she is in the best care she can be in with the doctors and nurses at Mass General. And we ask that your hands would be upon them and that you would give them wisdom and that you would give them the ability to do what they need to do in the way in which you have wired them to. And Father, for all of those folks who are dealing with things today, I want to leave them before you. You know what their needs are. You know what they struggle with. You know what all of our needs are. I thank you that Liv is where she is at, that she is just continuing to get healthy, that, that the work that you have done there in her, Lord, we are so very thankful for. For the little baby that continues to grow inside, we are thankful for. We honor you and we give thanks to you for that. We thank you for the doctors and the nurses in both hospitals that she found herself in. Your providence put her right in the place where she needed to be to get the care that she needed. And we can rest in that in all of our situations for everybody who is in need. That your providence is such a soft pillow we can put our head on. And we can trust you, Lord, in all things and all of our troubles. As we enter into the word this morning, Lord, this is a text that is often misused. It is often abused. Sometimes it's completely avoided altogether for fear of offense or for fear of using it to 
um, teach things that should not be taught. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart this morning, Lord, with what you have given me, will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, that we would all receive it. Father, that we would understand that we are all just broken clay pots journeying together. I pray that you would help us in that. Soften our hearts. Open our minds. Convict us of the things that we need to be convicted of. Conform us to the likeness of your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Okay. Um, Worship actually provided me with an extra 10 minutes, so um, there you have it. I've titled the message very simply to start this entire series out, Marriage. Um, Again, as I've said before, I just make it simple because it's much easier to do so. Now, I read all of verses 21 down through 33, the balance of chapter 5, because we're going to spend the next few weeks in that particular portion. But we're going to focus, really, um, when we get to it, on verses 22, 23, and 24. I thought to myself this morning that I've written so much about what it is we need to establish here that perhaps I was trying to avoid to get to wives submit, but I actually find that I have enough time to tackle that this morning. I think it's important that we understand the context of what Paul is saying, I think it's important that we understand um, why he is saying that and the importance of how it is we live in a grace-filled time as God has always had us to live. If God was not full of grace, none of us would be here today. Um, They probably would not have made it past the Red Sea, say nothing of growing forward as a country and as a culture. So what we're going to primarily look at is that happily ever after is a very easy thing to read at the end of any fairy tale that we might take a look at. Shrek in his swamp and happily ever after. But it is something, if we are going to be real with ourselves, is a very difficult and hard work. It takes a lifetime of faithfulness between two people who decided to say, I do, to one another at some point in life. Happily ever after is wonderful at the end of a book. It's wonderful at the end of a marriage, but it is a rocky road at times to get from where we say I do to where we say may he rest in peace. And if we can understand that, we can move forward in a good way. To think it's all bells, whistles, cupcakes, and puppy dogs puts us in a bad place. But we have instructions that make it very good for us if we are married. I mean, even if we are not married, for those of you who are not, this instruction is as good for you, whether you are a man or you are a woman. We need to remember, as weird as this may sound, and I say this in the sermon, we are the bride of Christ. How it is we live out our lives, whether we are single or we are married, we are representatives of Jesus. Okay, No less valuable, no more valuable than the other. We are all representatives of Jesus, and he has called us to a particular thing, whether it be single or whether it be married. Be settled in your heart where God has you and walk that out. Because coming to a passage such as this, the one that we're looking at today in a culture such as ours, becomes a very difficult task for any pastor to tackle, for anybody to actually try and teach for that matter working through all of the layers of what I firmly believe are false and simply wrong teachings about this passage is hard enough in and of itself. This has been framed out in such a way over the years that it's very difficult to work through all of that. 
But then to have to tackle this in a time when there is such cultural confusion on what it means to be married, what the redefinition of marriage actually is and what it isn't and how it is we define that, where it is we find ourselves within that, within a culture and a society that questions every single thing, especially this antiquated institution that they deem as not useful anymore or something that we can define any way we want. That's where we find ourselves. You see, teaching the biblical definition of and the purpose for marriage in a clear and loving way is vital and essential. It makes all of us uncomfortable, but it is vital and it is essential because marriage is not a cultural commitment. Understand that. Marriage is not a cultural commitment. Culture didn't come up with this. Nor is it a Judeo-Christian institution, although we are the ones who typically perform and adhere to the biblical narrative of marriage. It's not a cultural commitment, nor is it a Judeo-Christian institution. Marriage is a creation ordinance. It is rooted in the foundational creation of God himself when he put this entire universe together. He knit within his created order this marriage piece. Okay? This isn't something we came up with. That's why I read out of Genesis 2. This is a creation order. And we have to look at it that way in order to get it right going forward. It needs to be seen in its context and its purpose from creation. Not as something we define as we wish. Because if it's a created order... I don't have wiggle room. That may make me uncomfortable, and it makes a lot of other people uncomfortable as well. But I don't have the wiggle room to say I can take this or not take this or whatever it may be. If it is a created order, it is not something we can define the way we want. And if we look at the statistics, sadly the church itself over the last 100 years is not any different as we compare what our marriage and divorce rates are in relation to the culture that we live in. We pretty much mirror that. Now, there's some things that we can wrestle through within that, understanding that broken people who identify the fact that they're broken, if the church is operating correctly, tend to come to church, okay, which at times may negatively inflate numbers because we're dealing with broken people on a regular basis who are genuinely trying to walk the way they're supposed to. But suffice it to say that the church itself does not have better numbers when it comes to divorce and remarriage than the rest of the world. We have to face that. So we all ought to and must be thankful. And if you hear nothing else from me today, hear this. We ought to and must be thankful for God's grace to every one of us who need God's grace. Because looking around this room, every one of us is in a different situation. We are dealing with different issues. Some of us come from a particular background, others from a little bit different background. Some from a split family or a blended family, some are married and divorced, all of those things. Every single one of us sitting here today are in dire need of God's grace and the person we face every day is also in need of that grace. If we can start and finish there, it makes it a lot easier to walk this road when people ask these tough questions. Extending God's grace as he has extended it to us. Every single one of us are in desperate need of that. So we don't start with the premise that where is this person in relation to the biblical context of marriage? We ask ourselves, where is this person in relation to who Jesus sees? And how can we move on from there? Then we have the ability to speak into people's lives and share with them and let them share with us. We don't put up a wall instantly because we define where we think they ought to be. That's not what we're called to. 
This morning, I want to build the foundation for what we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead. Knowing that I've been here, I taught this in um, the spring of 2015 when I first got here. Um, Maybe some of you remember, perhaps you don't, because I'm not so sure that it was all that good. But anyway, um, we've been here in this text before. It's going to be good for us to look at it again. Because it's important for us to really understand as we dig deeply into Ephesians itself in the context of what it is we're looking at. And ultimately, in order to understand what we have here in Ephesians, we have to look at God's original design here in the overall story of Scripture. That's where we have to be. We can't take this out of context and say that Paul is just teaching people a new thing. We look at it in God's original design. That puts us, as it always does for each and every one of us, back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We visit there all the time. That is the seedbed for all of Scripture. It's the creation and it's the beginning of the fall. We have to go back there. If we want to know what God's original intent was, Genesis 1 and 2. That's where Paul goes in Ephesians 5. It's where Jesus goes in Mark 10. It's where Paul goes again in Colossians 3. And it's where Peter goes. Everybody goes back there. And we're going to get there. But I want us to sort out a couple of things. Things which are very important for us to understand that I have wrestled with that we need when we move forward. Because it's very unsettling to me that, that folks fall on this. So it's going to take me a little time to work through this, but this is critical for us to understand. There's a teaching, and some of you may be very familiar with it when I bring it up, which goes something like this. What a woman needs most is to be loved. And what a man needs most is respect. Once one gives one, the other gets what they need. Now keep in mind this particular thinking as we venture into this passage because I will say to you that this is a very wrong teaching and it starts us off in our relationships incorrectly. That's a wrong teaching. Marriage is a covenant between two people who are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.21. That's why we spent some time on that. A marriage is a covenant between two people. It is not a transactional relationship that says, I give to Lisa in order to get from Lisa. If you start there, you are going to have a very long road. When I said I do to Lisa, that meant a whole lot of things I wasn't aware of at 19 years old. Okay? Think that through. It doesn't mean transactional. In other words, you do for me, give me the respect that I deserve, and then I will do for you. I will love you as I'm supposed to love you. That's transactional. That's broken. That's wrong. That's not covenantal. It's all conditional. It means that either one of the spouses is going to feel as though they have to perform in a particular way in order to get what they feel they need. Does that make sense? We can't, we can't go there. We can't start there. It's doomed to failure if that's the direction we constantly go. We are doomed to failure. This is why last week we focused so much on verse 21, and it became so important for us. We have to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because that particular verse is a covenantal theology, meaning it's a promise that we make before God that we keep regardless of the pain. It is not a transactional works-related thing that if my wife makes me happy on Tuesday, then I'll be good to her on Wednesday. 
And it's constantly performing, trying to feel each other out to figure out if we've done what we need to today to make her happy. I want to snuggle with her at 9 o'clock. I'm going to empty the dishwasher at 4 because that's how it works. Wrong. That's not how it works. You empty the dishwasher, you don't because it needs to be emptied. It's that simple. Whether you get anything for it or not. Now, that doesn't mean we don't classically avoid that and pile stuff in the sink until we get yelled at. But we, we empty the dishwasher. Enough on that. We move forward. You get my point, guys. Okay? Empty the dishwasher. Pick your socks up. That was my weakness as we were first married. So Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, and we, we tackled this in our men's group. If you don't have this book, um, The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God, this is probably worth the $25 you could pay for it and read it. Actually, it's probably worth $100, $1,000. This is one of the best books I have ever read on what it means to have a covenantally based marriage. Okay, and in the words of Matt Chandler, Tim Keller's like the Yoda of spiritual understanding. So that's the dude you want to go to. It's easy to read, but it is deep in understanding of Scripture. He says this, most people enter marriage through the in-love experience. Amen? Okay, and, it's at, and at its peak, it is euphoric, the in-love phase. You still with me? That's where we are, okay? Usually it lasts several months to two years, and it includes the illusion, this is where we all go sideways, that the beloved is perfect in every aspect that matters. That's how every marriage starts. Am I wrong? No. Until you roll over on that first morning, and the hair, like I said before, is a little bit this way, and it just isn't what you thought it would be. Thinking this way is a recipe for disaster. But it is how every one of us think. It's how we're wired. We have to rewire ourselves not to think that way. Every one of us thinks this way, and it sets a relationship up which is transactional, which is conditional, and which takes off down the wrong road, and it's a struggle all the way along. In other words, you do for me, I will do for you. That's how marriages start, all of them. Then with expectations aren't met on a given Tuesday, things become difficult, they become rough, and you all of a sudden wonder who in God's name is this person who you married and where did all of those tingly feelings go? Well, they pass. They don't last forever. And if we are honest completely and entirely with ourselves, this is where most of us as couples start off. Understand now why it is we need grace? Every one of us here is broken, just in our own pretty way. Okay? This is where most couples start off, and if not figured out, very soon on, it becomes a lifetime of performance and frustration in an attempt to please, to make happy, to win respect, to earn love. Not, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It becomes a tit-for-tat game of what can I do for you. Keller continues, and he asks these good questions. What if, however, you began marriage understanding its purpose as spiritual friendship for the journey to new creation? It's a great question. What if you expected marriage to be about helping each other grow out of your sins and flaws and into the new self God is creating? Another good question. Then you will be expecting the stranger seasons. In other words, when you're both at each other's throats. And when you come to one, you roll up your sleeves 
and you get to work. You see, that is covenantal relationship rather than transactional relationship. It's not that you do this for me and then I do that for you. You see, this is why the notion that what man needs is respect and what a woman needs most is love is flawed and doomed from the start. Because covenant means unconditional. Covenant means unconditional. So where this finds every one of you in the room right now, that's what matters. Not what was. Remember that. Not what was. What's in the past is behind you. It's not in front of you. You cannot be held to that. We learn going forward, you see. Covenantal means unconditional. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Remember, those of you who are married said for better or for... Remember that. Why? Because it is and always will be conditional and performance-based if we continue to run through this transactional thing. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is not transactional. It's a covenant command. It's not a conditional request. God gives us the command through the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians that we are to submit to one another. It's a covenant command. He's not suggesting this. He says, you want your marriage to work well, start here. Start in verse 21. That's why I say it's the hinge thing. See, because what ends up happening is you get narcissistic men, abusers, verbally, physically, emotionally, controlling, massively insecure, typically. They use this particular teaching to subjugate and put women under their authority in a very unhealthy and unbiblical manner. And more often than not, they don't know anything about the scriptures except this one verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, in addition to that, what we end up with a lot of times is we have insecure, manipulative, angry, wounded women who do the same thing towards their husbands. And starting from the wrong place, they do things to make men operate in guilt and manipulate their feelings and all of that type of stuff. Why? Because they're starting from a transactional place, not a covenantal place. That says, I love this goofball that I said I do to all these years ago, and I'm kind of stuck with the guy. So we're going to figure out how it is God wants me to help him grow out of his sin and his flaws. And I do that by submitting out of reverence for Christ and working on my flaws and seeking to grow out of my sin. And when we do it together, it becomes this beautiful work of what God wants to do. See, we're not called to be either narcissistic, controlling, and insecure, or guilt-driven and manipulative in the way in which we operate in our marriages. We're not. They're both deadly for any type of marital success. Now, what we want to do is we want to focus on the good that we are to focus on. That has to be the foundation of where we can't be in relation to this. Now let's take a look at where we're supposed to be. Because there are things that are foundational for all that Paul says here in the rest of this chapter. He has been setting us up throughout this book for success. He's not setting us up to hit a wall and die in in, in abject failure. It is for success. So another quote from Keller and then we'll move forward. He then asks the question, what are the tools for the work? How can we engage one another in a spiritual friendship to help us on our journey toward our future selves? Another great question. Great question. How do we love each other so that our marriage goes on from strength 
to strength rather than stalling out in repetitive arguments that end in fruitless silence. Anybody ever been there? We don't want to be there. The rest of you either don't argue or you lie. (laughs) And that's a sermon for another time. Okay, so the basic answer is that you must speak the truth in love with the power of God's grace. Wow. Ephesians 4.15. That's what he ends with. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Paul has been setting us up for this moment in time so that we have the tools for success to be able to move forward and grow forward in our relationship understanding. So to understand this is to start in where? The best place, the very beginning. It's always good to go to the beginning. So we're back in Genesis 2 where our first reading was. It establishes the purpose as well as the foundation and the fabric of a healthy home and a healthy society and a healthy marriage. It's where it is. Genesis 2. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Bummer. Right in Genesis 2. Adam gets to name all the animals and all the birds. It's a story we frequently visit. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful story. Discovering along the way, hey, wait a minute. Here comes a tiger, mister. And, well, she looks an awful lot like him, but not quite the same, and so that's Mrs. Tiger. And then he goes through all this thing, and he comes to the end, and he discovers what? I don't have a companion that is like me, but it's just different enough than me that I can have a companion. He doesn't, he doesn't have that. What's going on with that? Well, you remember the rabbit trails we talked about? Don't go down them, because we could have one or a hundred rabbit trails here. And if you do that, you're going to miss the plain point here that Adam didn't have anybody like him. In other words, he was alone. He was lonely. He was incomplete, men. He was incomplete. God saw that he was incomplete. Do you think because God made a mistake and had to reset the high gain in the computer and take off down the road? No, this was the intent. This was the intent. God made a perfect complementary counterpart for Adam at that point. A perfect fit. Enough like him to be his partner, but different enough than him to make everything work. It's important. That's why we have Eve in Genesis 2, verses 21 and 22, that God made her out of man. How important is this for us to understand? It's very important because, you know, in ancient cultures, as we take a look at husbands and wives, in ancient cultures where the mother and the father, that entire family unit, was the most important thing going. Mom, dad, family. It was the fabric of ancient Near Eastern culture, actually everywhere. This is huge that the story that we get in Genesis is that, man, you're going to be taken or you will leave your home. You're going to leave your mom, you're going to leave your dad, and you're going to go and you're going to be attached to your wife. Woman, you as well. And together you will create your own family unit. See, we we co-create with God here. We can make little people that look like us. And that's a beautiful thing. We're to create our own family unit with your own covenant relationship as the cornerstone and the example of how God designed and sees his people. This is why this is a creation ordinance. It's not a cultural 
condition, and it's not a Judeo-Christian institution. It's a creation ordinance. God wired it right into creation itself. We have defined gender roles. Yes, okay, my wife can't do what I can do. Not because she's not my equal, but because she can't do what I can do. I can pick up 100 pounds. She'd probably punch me if I did it because it would hurt my back, but I can pick up 100 pounds. My wife can't pick up 100 pounds. There's a lot of things my wife can do that I can't do just because I'm a guy. Okay, does this make sense? Define gender roles. But we are absolutely equal in creation. There's not a woman on planet Earth that is not equal to a man. Anybody that tells you otherwise in relation to how God sees us is wrong. Women are not blessed by their husbands because their husbands are super sanctified. Women stand on their own two feet in front of the cross where the ground is level, equal with men. Now, gender roles, that's a different story because we're made what? Different. We're just enough to like to make it work, but we're different, and that's how it works. There. I don't know if you're a little bit homework to chew on for a while. Marriage is the perfect example of what our relationship to God is to be. This is where it gets even more important. The marriage is the perfect example of what our relationship to God is to be. The scriptures tell us that we are his bride. Again, I said earlier, that's weird. I know that. But the reality is, is that's the picture that's being painted for us in the scriptures. That our marriage is to be the example of what it looks like, our relationship to God the Father. That we are Jesus' bride. The church is his bride. That's what Paul says. So our marriage is supposed to manifest that into the world. So when people say, what does it look like for God to have a relationship with humanity? Well, this is how. A husband, a wife, a family, structured this way with all of these types of things going on. That's what's supposed to happen. That becomes a testament to God's faithful covenant with his people. And a proclamation of the gospel itself out into the world. This is how God has wired creation to be. So there's a certain way we're supposed to behave, a certain way we're supposed to act. You want to know what Jesus established for us, what his relationship to the church is to look like and what it is to be? The marriage bond between a man and a woman, wired right into the creation order fabric of everything. A husband plus a wife equals the marriage bond. That's what Jesus, our bridegroom, and we, the church, the bride, are to look like and how it is we are to work one to another. So when we come to this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, is absolutely critical, isn't it? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In relation to how we see our roles in marriage, how we die to ourselves, and how it is we are to live to the other person, trust, this is not an easy thing. I work this out every single day. Get it wrong a lot of the times, get it right a lot of the times. But this is to be worked out every single day. Your wedding day was not the most complicated day of your life. Anybody who's been married more than two days knows that. We have to understand that this is a lifetime of growing together. It becomes vital as well as how we see ourselves in light of all of this. That's important also. 
Where we start as individuals is super critical. Chapter 1, remember all of the in him statements that God has given to us in him that makes us who we are with verses 9 and 10 being the crowning verse and working themselves out by making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has fixed the relationship of humanity with himself and ultimately with each other. That works itself out. We learn in chapter 2 and our understanding what all of that means in our personal lives when we hit Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. Who God made us individually and wired us to be. You were saved by grace through faith, right? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. See, there's the whole marriage thing. That's grace. It's a gift. It's a covenant. God gives it to us so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. Each of us wired in a particular way, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Sometimes we walk in them alone. Sometimes we walk in them together. But that's how he's wired us. You see, God is setting us up and has set us up for success. Not for failure, but for success. If we step into his plan for us in our personal lives and then in our married life and our work life and how that works itself out, if we step into that in the fullness of who Jesus wants us to be instead of always trying to make it on our own, trying to struggle from day to day, how can I perform and do this, that, and the other thing. Chapter 3 tells us all those powerful statements, but it ends with this most powerful statement that the church is the prophetic voice. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we are his representatives here on earth. And how it is we proclaim the gospel, how it is we live our lives, what it looks like even within our marriages. That is proclaimed in the heavenly places by the church. That this is how it works. And then we took off into chapter 4 where we learned the commands for us and how we are to behave in light of all of this. That's why we spent so much time in chapter 4 and walked our way through that. And some of you are wondering if we're ever going to end Ephesians, but we will, I promise you. How it is we're supposed to operate in the church as a community and how it is we're supposed to operate out into the world. And then in our individual relationships at home is what Paul is setting us up for now. How do we do that? All of these things, unity, ministry, maturity, they lead us to be what? Kind, Paul tells us. Be kind. Make sure you're that way. Make sure you're walking in love. Make sure you're making the best use of your time. Do all these things. Submitting to one another out of reverence for our king, for Jesus. See, we didn't just land here by accident. Paul has been driving this car very intentionally right to this spot. Because we learned a couple weeks ago that being imitators of God, walking like Jesus, that's Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, puts us right here in verses 22 through 33, how that works itself out in the most important relationship we'll have, marriage. In light of all that, we find ourselves at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That takes on a whole different meaning now, doesn't it? not get my slippers in my pipe. It's not make sure my dinner's on the table when I get home. Albeit that if that's how you have your house, that's fine. But that, that's not what this is saying. That's not submission. That's not submission at all. And that's not what Paul's talking about. 
in light of everything that we just went over. Wives submit to your own husbands as the Lord takes on an entirely different meaning. It's not a do what you're told kind of thing. But you see, we have got so many hurt and wounded women in this world who have dealt with relationships like this that the minute they hear the word submit, they want nothing to do with what is being said. And if you're a man, be sensitive to that. Be sensitive to that. You have no idea what the majority of women in this world deal with. We're fat-headed and we think we know everything. But I'm not a woman. I don't know. So when we deal with this, we have to be sensitive in that way. Okay? We don't look at a woman and let her know that she's got her place and that starts with taking care of her husband. That's not, that's not how this is meant to map itself out. That is not what this text of Scripture says. You see, submit in our time is a dirty word because it's been abused and misused. In practice, it has been so misused as a way to gain power, to subjugate people, typically women. And we think that that's an okay thing to do. And if there are women who are hurt here today on behalf of the church because of the fact that we miss the mark a lot of times, I apologize for that. That's not what we're supposed to be about. That's not what the scripture teaches. If you've been taught that that's what this means, I say to you pastorally, that is wrong. That is wrong. Taken to the extreme, especially in that fall mentality as we continue on in Genesis 3, it makes sense why women or anyone for that matter would struggle with the statement, submit. You see, this is why verse 21 is so very important. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that doesn't make it easy. And it doesn't mean we're going to get it right tomorrow when we walk out of here. That just means that that is where we start. Then we work it out. Verse 23 is critical, not just for wives. So wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He's continuing on verse 21. What does verse 23 say? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Don't miss this, men. And don't miss this, ladies. Don't just, oh, this is how it works, and scoot over this. How did Jesus purchase the church? His body. How did he do that? Well, he served with every ounce of his being. Oh yeah, then he died. He's crucified. Why? Because his death relieved us of our sin. He did so to make her pure and to make her holy. Men. That's how Jesus did things. He is the head of the church. So you submit to your husband's As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Listen, husband, if you are representing Jesus, how are you walking like Jesus walked? If you are demanding your wife to be in submission to you, 
How is that working? In order for the husband to be the head, to be the one worthy of submission, he must lead as Jesus led. And this is usually the response I get when I get here. How? This is important for us. I want healthy marriages. I want healthy marriages. I want women who are deeply gifted in what it is God has called them to be gifted in, to be lifted up and raised up and to be released the way they're supposed to be. Because they are equal. They are equal. In order for the husband to be the head, to be worthy of submission, he must lead as Jesus did. Serve. Sacrifice. Drawing out of your wife every gift you see God has placed in her. That is your job, men. Draw out of your wife every gift that God has given her, providing her the opportunity to walk in those gifts, the protection she needs to ensure that she can walk in those gifts, reinforcing her, being her best support, walking right next to her, ensuring that she has the opportunity to do the things that she is called to do. That means sometimes we're two steps behind and one step to the right, and that's okay. That's how we do it. Because this relationship, frankly, is a covenantal promise relationship, not a transactional what's in it for me. And remember, the goal, as Keller puts it, is a spiritual friendship, that you both are helping each other grow out of your sins and your flaws into the new self that God created you to be. You see, wives submit has to be seen in this entire context. It has to be seen in this entire context. Marriage is not a one-sided affair. Nor is marriage an easy road. Don't think that it is. Now just one last thing that I've got for a note and then we're going to close as I have the worship team come up. I want you to understand this thing here. 1 Corinthians 11 where we, we focus on that women aren't supposed to speak in church but we miss the important part of this particular chapter. And I leave this with you. I commend you because... You remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. Men start doing this. Women don't talk in church and that's where we go. What the next line says is this, and I've got this circle because this is the important piece. The head of Christ is God. So Jesus the man made himself subjected to God the Father positionally, even though he was equal to God the Father spiritually. Leaving the example for husbands and wives. Positionally, because of gender roles, okay, there's some things that women can't do. But spiritually, what Paul tells us here is that even Jesus himself submitted himself willingly to the headship of God the Father as Jesus of Nazareth, the man. Did that eliminate his equality with God? Did it? No, Philippians chapter 2, still equal with God, but subjected to him positionally. That's the example we have. So how Peterson puts it, and this I leave with you as we close. I've gone over my time. Verses 21 and 22 and 23 from the message, I think it's helpful. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. 
the husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to the church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. The most beautiful thing is when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, whoever we are, because we're walking in God's perfection in that way. We can then submit ourselves to our wives, to our husbands, to those in authority over us in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus and nobody else. Then relationships become very healthy because it's operating in a covenant way and not in a transactional way. Now you're not pulling your hair out anymore. Did I make them happy? Did I not? Have I satisfied my King and my Lord Jesus today? If I have done that, Scripture tells me that everybody else is going to be satisfied. There'll be some people who won't like us, but our spouse especially, if we are operating as Jesus did, will be satisfied with us. Let's stand. Fathers, we close in this one last song. I'm thankful for this letter. I'm thankful for what it is you teach us. I'm thankful for each and every person here, wherever this finds each one of us. I'm thankful, Father, that your word is clear for us, not, not so that we can feel bad, but so that we can be conformed to the likeness of Jesus because that's the best way for us to live. That brings about the most healthy life. That brings about the most joy-filled life. Even in the midst of suffering and persecution, that brings about joy and happiness because we are living as Jesus called us to live and we are being conformed to his likeness. For those who can pray, I ask that you take your spots here. And I would challenge anybody today... Wherever this word finds you, I know that it's uncomfortable for me. It's got to be uncomfortable for everybody else, mostly because I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And I confess that to you as I've confessed that to the Lord. I am not where I'm supposed to be. But that doesn't mean that I haven't taken steps down that road. I want to encourage you to step out in prayer this morning, even if it's just for encouragement, if it's for the blessing that you need to be reminded that God passionately loves you right where you are at. And that he cares more about you than you could ever imagine, no matter what is going on in your life. I want to challenge you to step out this morning. Pray with one of the folks that are around this sanctuary. Be reminded how passionately God loves you and wants you to walk in what it is he has for you. He has created you, knit you together in your mother's womb, launched you out into this world and gifted you in a way that only you can affect this world. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name.